This is Archive Atlanta, episode 44, Atlanta Churches, part two. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So in part one of the Atlanta Churches episode, I shared that I am personally not religious. So it has come as a surprise how obsessed I've become with the history of churches across the city. Because our society and culture places higher value on these structures over others, sometimes churches are the oldest or even the only remaining building in a community. This is 100% true in rural parts of the state. Um, Sometimes the only way you know that a neighborhood ever existed is because the church is still there. And if you've been listening to me over these last 40-ish episodes, I'm always striving to find something that's still around to connect me to the past. So this week, I'm tackling part two of Atlanta's churches. In this episode, we're covering stories of enslaved people, protesting nuns, a church built by the Confederate Army, the first female architect in the state, and the owners of Stone Mountain. What I thought was going to be just a fluff topic has opened my eyes to so much interesting history and also appreciation of buildings that I didn't pay much attention to before. Our first church is a Catholic one. Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church is hard to see, and it's not exactly architecturally significant. I'm not trying to be mean, it's just not one of those things that you pass by and notice. It also falls into the background because of its proximity to the Martin Luther King Jr. National Park and the historic fire station number six. But the next time you're over there, or you're just passing along Boulevard, Take a moment to take in the structure at 25 Boulevard. The church was established in 1912 by Father Ignatius Listener as the first African-American Catholic church in the city of Atlanta. Father Ignatius was the son of a Jewish convert born in France. He became a missionary in Africa, and there he became very interested in the African-American Catholics. He would ask to transfer to the United States and transfer to Georgia at the turn of the century. By 1916, he helps establish a religious community for African-American women. Funding for this project came from Mother Catherine Drexel, who was an heiress from Pennsylvania and established an order to support African-Americans and Native Americans. During the Civil Rights Movement, the parishioners and nuns of Our Lady of Lourdes participated in protests that occurred all over the Old Fourth Ward. There was a Catholic school there that actually many people remember or talk about going to that ran from 1974 until 2001. The next three churches I'm talking about are all Episcopalian, and I grew up Catholic, so I have no idea what Episcopalians are or why there are so many of them in Atlanta. So I looked this up for myself, but I think it helps to give some context, and so I'm going to share a little bit of general history about the denomination. Episcopalians are American members of the Anglican Church. Before the Revolutionary War, Anglicans were the largest religious group in the state of Georgia, as they're pretty much responsible for the founding of the colony. In 1789, all Anglicans in the United States reconstitute themselves as the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States. The period after the Revolutionary War was a tough one. Most British clergy had left the country, and then they had to deal with the suspicions that they were still loyal to the British crown. There was kind of a lull in the denomination in Georgia, but by 1840, we have 300 members. During the Civil War, they would secede from the main Protestant church, just like the Confederate States did, and they would form their own Confederate States version. By the end of the war, they are welcomed back in, and then you have one large organization again. 
the growth of the South really mirrors the growth of the Episcopalians, and that's why you see so many churches of the faith today, especially in Georgia. So the next church I'm talking about is another church with ties to Atlanta's African-American community. The Butler Street CME Church is also one that gets lost to the passerby, as it stands at 23 Jesse Hill Jr. Drive, formerly Butler Street, but it's catty corner to Grady Hospital and the Sweet Auburn Curb Market. So many people are going to either of those places, and they never really notice the church that is across the street. The CME in the name used to stand for Colored Methodist Episcopal, which was formed in 1870 as a subset of the Methodists. This Atlanta church was founded in 1882 on this very corner, evolving from a Sunday school being held on Gilmer Street, a white man named John Thomas Grant donated the land. Grant was born in Athens. Like most wealthy white men in Atlanta, he made his money in the railroad. The deed from 1884 specifically states that this land be used for this church and this congregation. It was very specific. And there was a revisionary clause and that any of that changed, an heir of the Grant estate would get that land back. John actually explained on the deed why he donated this land, which was also not really common practice. And on the paper, it says, quote, Now, therefore, in consideration of the goodwill I bear my former slaves and to the colored people generally, members of said church, and in consideration of an earnest desire to elevate the religious and moral sentiment and life of this large body of recently enfranchised people in our midst, I will ask no further consideration to me in hand paid. End quote. The thing is, history is unclear about whether the members of this congregation were actually Grant's former slaves or if the gift was just on behalf of all former slaves. The second signature on this deed was Bishop Lucius Holsey. Born enslaved, the son of his white master and his enslaved mother, he would go on to become an ordained minister, co-founder of Payne College, and organizer of many other churches in Atlanta. After living through the lynchings of the 1890s and the 1906 race riot, Holsey became a proponent of a separate state for black Americans. The first church building on this spot was a modest frame structure, and then in 1920 it was demolished to make way for the building you see today. This new church would be neo-Gothic revival with stained glass windows dedicated to all the people who helped found the congregation or the church. So, of course, Bishop Holsey has his own window, and his is really special because it actually contains a picture of him within the design. No one else has that on their stained glass. Tiger Flowers bought the seats from the soon-to-be-demolished Lyric Theater, and he had them installed in the church, quote, so the congregation could sit comfortably while listening to the good word, end quote. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, who the heck is Tiger Flowers? He is going to be one of the topics of my mini-episode released next month, so stay tuned to the end of the show to listen about how you can hear those. Butler Street CME was also the church of Lawrence Calhoun, who was the chauffeur of Robert Woodruff. Woodruff would continue to donate to the church throughout the years, and a stained glass window inside is actually dedicated to him. It was also the home church of Donald Hollowell, famed civil rights attorney. In 1969, the congregation purchases the land from the heirs of John Grant for a very small sum. And in his estate, a descendant of Grant, his name was Hollis, provides an annual cash gift to this day to the church. Now, geographically, we are headed out of downtown, up the famed Petrie Street. 
The last two churches I talked about in part one were the Sacred Heart and First United Methodist. The third church today is not far from there, and it's St. Luke's Episcopal Church. Organized by the Reverend Charles Todd Quintard, who was a surgeon and a chaplain in the Confederate Army. In March of 1864, he created the St. Luke's Parish, and the first structure was built by Confederate troops at the corner of Walton and Broad. 1864, if you guys are paying attention, it's the last year of the war, so we can all assume what happened, and that's mean the building caught fire. It would not survive the burdening of Atlanta. Just five years after the war, though, there was a renewed interest in restarting the congregation, A bishop offered $500, and another $1,500 was raised. This reborn church would be called St. Stephen's Church, and it would be named so for two years before they voted to switch it back to St. Luke's. They would go on to build two more churches, both deep in downtown, before moving a little further north onto Petrie Street. The St. Luke's Church that you see today stands at 435 Petrie Street, and it dates to 1906. The stained glass is probably what St. Luke's is most well known for, as they periodically offer tours to learn about it. All of the windows were created over a period of 60 years from some of the most famous firms. Franz Meyer of Germany, Heaton, Butler, and Bain of London, and Willett from Philadelphia. There's also a huge mural painted in 1913 by artist E.H. Blashfield, which, by the way, same artist that did the reading room ceiling in the Library of Congress. I actually got to peek inside this church before. It's usually open during Streets Alive um, or kind of any other event that's happening on Petrie Street. So if you have a chance to do that, it is beautiful and I highly recommend it. Next, we continue to travel up Petrie Street, but we make a small lane change towards West Peachtree. Directly across the street from the North Avenue Marta Station at 634 West Peachtree stands All Saints Episcopal Church. It's also like a block from the varsity, so if that helps you understand where it is a little better, you can use that. I love this church's history because so much of it has to do with women, and we don't see that often in early religious history, and heck, even in today's religious history. In 1901, Mary Jane Peters donates a small piece of land to the Diocese of Georgia to be used explicitly for church purposes. Now, if Peters is ringing any bells, she is the wife of Richard Peters from episode 43 and the mother of Nellie Peters Black from episode 27. The Peters have taken over Archive Atlanta here. This land just happened to be on a corner lot in the failed residential subdivision called Peters Park. What I found interesting is that Mary's parents were part of the original group of founders of First Presbyterian Church. And don't worry, I think we're probably going to cover that in another episode. But when she married Richard, who was an ardent Episcopalian, she converted for love. So in 1903, All Saints is founded as the third Episcopalian parish in Atlanta, in an area that at that time was the northern edge of the city limits. The original wood and stucco chapel was designed by Harriet Dozier, who was the first female architect in Georgia. I have a mini episode about her and Layla Ross Wilburn on deck as well. This first chapel is torn down to make way for a new building, which is the one you see today. Built in 1906, this time around the architects are two men, Thomas Morgan and John Dillon. And the style is called Victorian Gothic, 
It's really a beautiful, unique church, um, especially if you have a chance to stop and look at it. It has a distinctive red stone and then that really um, skinny, narrow green spire on top. And now we've come to the last church in this week's episode, North Avenue Presbyterian. The name is self-explanatory as it sits on the corner of North Avenue and Peachtree Street. And if you've listened to my episode about the last mansions of Peachtree, you'll know about the growth of our famous street and how the rich white families of Atlanta would build their mansions and head north. So this is hard for people to imagine, but the city of Atlanta limits were right about, let's say, Emory Hospital. It didn't go further than that. And the churches that the earliest Atlantans were attending were all downtown for a reason. That's where people lived. So as the grand mansions of Peachtree Street are built and headed outside the city, traveling one or two or three miles to go to church service was really cumbersome. These new homeowners, with last names like High, as in the High Museum, McCarty, of commercial fertilizer fame, and Harris, who made their money in insurance, these wives of these prominent men took members from both Central Presbyterian and First Presbyterian, and together they formed the congregation of North Avenue Presbyterian. This happened in 1898 in December, and two years later, they had built their Romanesque church building that you see today. It was designed by Bruce and Morgan and constructed all out of Stone Mountain granite. Now that was probably for a particular reason, because the Venable Brothers were members of the church, and the Venable Brothers owned Stone Mountain. In 1909, North Avenue Presbyterian School was created with just 21 students. By 1921, the school is so large, it has its own campus down on Ponce de Leon, and it operates as a co-ed school through the 6th grade and a girls-only school through the 12th grade. What many people don't know is that when Westminster School forms in 1951, it's actually born from the merging of North Avenue Presbyterian and Washington Seminary. And yes, I have one yearbook from Washington Seminary, and I am hoping to get one from North Avenue Presbyterian. So there you have it, the story of even more Atlanta churches. And we've barely made it to Midtown, so there's certainly going to be more in the future. I hope I can impart a sense of wonder to see past their initial purpose and take into consideration what their location, building material, or even architecture can tell you about the history of the city and its people. Thank you guys for listening, and a thank you for the reviews and the ratings on iTunes. They are a pleasure to read. The podcast just hit 20,000 total downloads, and with a number that high, I know they can't all be my mom and my boyfriend. So I truly appreciate everyone that's listening, and I just want to say thank you. A reminder that the two bonus mini-episodes are being released this month in August. You can get them both for $1 a month. The first one's going to be about Atlanta's first public execution. And if that sounds like something you want to check out, just head over patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.